Pod Save the Queen! Hello and welcome to Pod Save the Queen. I'm your host, Zoe Forsey, and we have a very special episode for you this week. And I am joined by royal biographer Andrew Morton to talk through his new book, The Queen, and uh, yeah, all the great stories in that. So, hi, Andrew, how are you? Good morning. Great, great to talk to you. It's yeah, it's so lovely to have you on the show, and we're really excited to hear all about the new book. So, why have you decided? Obviously, you've written about so many members of the royal family. Um, why did you decide for the to do the Queen for this book? Yes, I've written some twenty-five books over a career of forty years, and I t- I've tackled the Queen obliquely, as it were. I, I did an ITV documentary about her several years ago, and then my last book, um, Elizabeth and, um, and Margaret was about the intimate life of the the Windsor sisters. So that gave me an insight into her growing up and her her days during the war. And I thought, well, I mean, it's her jubilee. Go for the big one. Why not? And as you said, you've you've written so many biographies over the years. How did you get into it? How did you start? (laughs) Well, I I always wanted to be a a political reporter. And then one day uh, my editor uh, called me in and said, well, you can look over uh, crowds. You know how to spell Prince Philip. You're going to be on (laughs) there. Royal correspondent. And so that was back in 1982 in those halcyon days. And my first ever job was was uh, chasing Prince Andrew, who was then the world's most eligible bachelor and and an actress, an American actress, not Meghan Markle, but a girl called Catherine Stark to the island of Mustique, where they traveled under a assumed married name, Mr. and Mrs. Cambridge. And the whole world because they thought that the world's most eligible royal bachelor had secretly married this uh, American actress. Um, And uh, so I spent a week, (laughs) I spent a week in Mustique, which was probably the most fun you could have with your clothes on. Yeah, (laughs) I was going to say, that's a nice place to, yeah. (laughs) That's a very nice place to be kind of posted on a job, I guess. And obviously we know the royals love it there, don't they? That the Middletons Uh, go regularly as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that was my first, and then I came back and I wrote my first book, Andrew the Playboy Prince. Oh, okay, what a, what a name one, of my a time. My one critic is the worst book ever written. Now, so who has been your favourite royal to write about so far? Oh, there's absolutely no question at all that the, the book I wrote about Diana, or with, with Diana's intimate cooperation for several years, Diana, Her True Stories, will, will be my the book that people single out on my epitaph, really, because it's it's been described as a modern classic. I'm very proud of it. And the, and, and the book did change the way people saw the royal family and obviously Diana and her marriage to Prince Charles in, in particular. Of course, it really is an incredible book. And we will come back to that later, if that's all right. But yeah. to start with, what I wanted to do was just to talk through your first meeting with the Queen that you discuss uh, right at the start of the book. And also, I want to hear more about these cocktail parties that you went to on Royal Tours. They sound lovely. <laughs> they were quite fun, actually. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the first time I met the Queen was in San Diego Harbour in 19, February 1983, when she was on a, a tour of California. And if it, if it was a West End play, it would have been called the tour that went wrong because everything that, <laughs> oh, everything that could go wrong with it went wrong with it. But it gave you a real insight into the Queen's character and personality. And uh, she'd had a tour, we'd all had a kind of a, a, a grand tour of, of the American Navy and it was kind of an awesome sight. So we were basically talking about that. But what had struck me most about that, uh, that entrance into San Diego by the the Royal Yacht Britannia was this beautiful ship, the Royal uh, uh, the Royal Yacht uh, Britannia, and I thought I'd like to read more about it. Nobody had written a book about it, so I decided to do one myself, and that got me started on the on the the, the road to writing books. Fantastic. So, and um, what was the first? Down to com- the Queen. I owe it to the Queen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, sure she, I'm sure she would be thrilled. And you detail in the book the first conversation you had with her. Um, what was that like? It must have been. Was it nerve wracking, or what was it like yeah, yeah, to I actually mean, be put yeah, in front of her? Yeah, I mean, everybody says, "Oh no," it's just you know. I mean, even Joanna Lumley says, uh, uh, "Sorry." Helen Mirren said that she gets goes wobbly bonkers when she meets the Queen, <laughs> even though she's played her. Um, 
And uh, uh, of course, you're, you're very nervous when you when you're meeting HMQ for the first time, and and I duly was. And you know, the conversation was about the American Navy, entirely forgettable as far as she, she was concerned. <laughs> but um, it, it, these royal tours in the old days, the royal tours would start off with a cocktail party for with the royal principals and the the, the travelling pack. And the first time I met Diana, for example, was in um, Alice Springs, in the, the the hot heart of Australia, and she was she was uh, uh, nervous about meeting the press, and uh, she'd just done some TV work with Alistair Burnett, the, the famous ITV newsreader, and she was quite pleased with how that had come out, and and but she was you know nervous about the the upcoming tour, and she and she did come out really as a as an ingenue and she went back a seasoned professional after seeing you know after making something on the in the region of 55 flights in 50 days to to go around australia so so it's funny when members of the royal family complain about um only the, the, the a 10-day visit is leaves them exhausted mentioning no names um we did i think it was eight eight weeks uh, without a day off I mean, that's before that the Queen did six months with Prince Philip, um, uh, touring Australia and, and and New Zealand, and nobody nobody thought anything of it. That was they were the the absolutely mad tours, weren't they? From that kind of a world away from what they do now, and obviously she she had to do that without taking the kids with her, didn't she? So not only were you six, you know like six months away, you did it without family, and just as she said, nonstop, so much travelling, and when you couldn't just jump on a plane and make a quick trip. Well, exactly. I mean, when when the Queen and Prince Philip, when she was just Queen, in, uh, went to Australia in 1954, they left Charles and Anne behind for six months to the point where they were genu- genuinely concerned that the kids would actually recognise them. And you have that famous picture of, of uh, Prince Charles uh, shaking his mother's hand as opposed to giving her a cuddle or being given a cuddle. Um, a very different world to, say, when Diana was a royal mother and you've got that amazing picture of her running down the Oh, deck that's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Scooping the two boys up in her arms like a kind of a, an avenging angel, as it were. Um, that was on the quayside in um, in Canada. I love that. I think that's still one of my favourite photos of Diana. It's just such a beautiful, you know, it's such a lovely moment. It's really nice. There's so much energy in it, hasn't it? Exactly. And, and life and love. And, yeah. Uh, and one of those and, pictures, I think you really saw her in, you know, like more, more you know, her personality and her yeah, I mean, you'd love. Never, you'd never, you might see Catherine and Meghan do it, but I don't think you'd ever see Princess Anne doing that kind of thing or for that matter, Prince Charles. Now, speaking of royal tours, the Cambridge's Caribbean trip earlier this year was obviously heavily criticised. Lots of people said it was out of touch and it's led to lots of conversations about whether and how royal tours need to change. Do you agree with that or do you think they need to change or how do you think they can be brought more up to date? Well, it's always been a difficult gig because... um, after all, a royal tour is there to uh, uh, express uh, elements of Britain's foreign policy. You're there on, on what you might call soft diplomacy. And um, ma- many nations now want to be independent. And so, and I think that that debate is brewing. And we've seen that debate, you know, with Barbados and Jamaica. Um, and it will be a debate that when the Queen, you know, passes the reins over to Prince Charles, it will be a wider debate that every country in the Commonwealth will have, um, notably Australia. Um, and and it, the Commonwealth it's, itself may change shape and dimension. It's no longer, um, you know, uh, this, this sense of um, the royals you know, glad-handing people and uh, uh, making small talk. It's its more important than that these days. And obviously your first talk was, as you mentioned, in 1983. And apart from the length of them, what else have you noticed has changed already? I mean, they're far more accessible. And, that's, and, and it, it's less to do with Britain's foreign policy and more to do with the charities that the principals 
um, are focused on. So, you know, uh, Prince Harry's, when he's gone to Africa, has focused on, on, on some of his AIDS charities, um, as opposed to... Uh, the, 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 it used to be more the case that you would meet more of the, as it were, the civic leaders, uh, not just the politicians, but in, in the small towns. Um, not so much these days. It's more to do, you, you meet the heads of NGOs. Um, from my point as well, like, I think they feel... I think because they focus on the charities and the things that the royals are really passionate about and have been really involved in for years, they, they just feel a lot more fun. Like, for example, you know, when uh, the Duchess of Cambridge went down the slide, um, the brilliant picture at the slide at the Lego Museum, yeah. they're just a lot more relaxed, and a lot more fun. And I don't know, obviously, I wasn't kind of covering the royal beat then, but I can't imagine, as you said, you know, Princess Anne or Princess Margaret or the Queen ever going down a slide on a tour <laughs> on a tour back in the eighties? Um, Do you agree? That's a very good point you make. I mean, it, it, the, the the royal tours all have always been about photographic opportunities, but now it's very much picture led as opposed to fact led. So you know, the the, the Queen has always famously said, I don't do stunts. And I think going <laughs> down a slide is would be a stunt. But she, even she, she's kind of relaxed a, a lot more on, on royal tours. Um, I think she was in Malaysia and she signed a football for, for some kids. And, <laughs> and she, so so she she uh, as a as a human being as a woman seems a lot more relaxed on on the visits that she's made. Although as we all know now she no longer takes uh, these long distance flights. I think that's a, a good kind of general point about the Queen, actually, is I do feel we've seen her relax a lot more in the last 10 years. Obviously, she's still, you know, she's still extremely formal and still follows the rule. But you ha you do have these moments like, you know, obviously she did the my, I think, favourite memory of like the thing the Queen's done is I love the Invictus Games video she did with Prince Harry to the Obamas, <laughs> you know, and she did the mic drop and she did that's the right, oh, yeah, please moment. Yeah. And obviously the Olympic opening ceremony, the piece with James Bond, which is still brilliant. And she had the, she had the famous line, didn't she? The good evening, Mr. Bond. Um, you know, and you're seeing these funny moments from her where it's, I just think it's really lovely and every, you know, there's more of a person that like you see more of her personality and everyone who has been lucky enough to meet her and spend time with her, as you mentioned, you, you know, know that sense of humour, but I think we as the public are getting to see more of it now. Yes. I, I think that's a very good point that uh, the new technology and the zoom and has brought the queen into people's homes more frequently than uh, when she's on a, on a, a Royal walkabout. And, you know, the royal family used to be a lot more a lot more stiff and more stand standoffish. And remember, it wasn't it was it was in New Zealand in 1970 where the first walkabout took took place. And uh, so it's taken the, 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 the crown a long time to get into a more relaxed, as it were, frame of mind. I mean, it's it's um, uh, uh, in the in the old days, people would just stand and look at the rolls, and the rolls would stand and look at them, and then they would walk go, go by. Um, these days, it, it, there's a lot more interaction, and yes, you're seeing with the Queen's behaviour. I mean, I love that story about her um, having her pockets sewn on her on her clothes when she was a kid, and notably Queen Mary made made her always have her hands out of her pockets and she, and she's told um, Angela Kelly her dresser that the one thing she wanted was to uh, actually have a, to be photographed with her hands in her pockets and and Angela organized that for her and she was thrilled and those little details it shows you that you know you, you might be the richest the most uh, most known woman on the planet but you want to be able to to stand with your hands in your pockets exactly, like a school yeah. kid. And but, it is the look on her face in that photo, I think is just, you could see the bit of, bit of mischievous and she just looks so happy. I love it. Yes, I, I agree with you. The most thrilling moment watching the Queen was watching her jump out of a helicopter outside, <laughs> outside the, 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 the London Stadium. And I think it was a Japanese tourist who said, we could never get our emperor to do that. Kudos to the Queen. Oh, so they believed it. They thought it was... Yeah. It was a <laughs> Didn't you? I did. Yeah. 
it was so well done it was such a great moment and again when she came out she just had that little look on her face which I just think is absolutely brilliant um, and I must say actually and we will come on to the Sussexes later but I really miss seeing Prince Harry on royal tours as well because he was whatever people's thoughts on him now he was so much fun at these public engagements and he they were just he always had a laugh he made great pictures he always got so involved and that's something I think the royal family is really missing now Yes, Prince Harry was and is a natural. He's got, he and his wife have got charisma, and there's no de- denying that. And people do respond to them in a very positive way when they meet them. There's obviously a lot of negativity surrounding their uh, behaviour and their policies, but that's but but Harry has always been someone who connects. And when I see Harry kneeling down, putting his arm around some kid. I'm just watching Diana again, and it, take, it transports you back uh, 25, 30 years. Now, you talk about Meghan and Harry and their decision to step back from their senior role duties a lot in the book. Um, but one of the things that I found really interesting is that you highlight that the um, arrangements for them to step back started a lot earlier than we kind of thought. It was in May 2019. So, you know, months before we had the announcement. And there was a really interesting line um, I liked in the book, uh, which was, while Meghan and Harry's royal life together had started brightly, it soon began to unravel and they began creating a roadmap for the future that ran parallel to the royal family rather than directly being part of it. And I think that parallel line is really interesting. And, you know, why did it start so early on? Well, I mean, it started even earlier than that, that um, Harry was having conversations in a London hotel with Oprah Winfrey back in November uh, 2018, just six months after they'd been married. So so they they were thinking about a different direction of travel uh, pretty early on. And and the irony is they had been given basically keys to the first class lounge when Prince Harry was given the the position of youth ambassador to the Commonwealth, which was effectively the Queen's way of saying, you know, you do the rest of the world, leave William and Catherine to do the UK, where they will eventually be the the heads of state. And that just seemed like the perfect the perfect gig for both of them, wasn't it? Because was that where he was the kind of he had the main role when she was the the deputy or the the second, I can't remember exactly what the titles were. Sorry, it's this terrible gap in my knowledge. But, you know, it just sounded like the perfect project for them to do. They would have been able to travel anywhere. They could have easily lived somewhere else in the Commonwealth for a few years they wanted to. Why do you think that didn't work out, as I'm assuming the Queen hoped it would? Well, they were thinking about living in New Zealand. In fact, they talked to the Prime Minister of New Zealand about it. So they they had all kinds of... Uh, plots and 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 thoughts about their future and it it, it didn't work out i think when, when it actually comes down to it prince harry is cursed with charisma but he but he hates being a prince and i think that he saw megan as a way as a way out they didn't have to leave the royal family in the way that they did but they did and you know Nobody, you know, nobody thanks you for a divorce, and nobody thanks you for a royal divorce. And uh, as a couple, they divorce themselves from the royal family. Um, having said that, the Queen and Prince Philip, as you may recall, back in the ni- late nineteen forties, after they married, they lived in Malta for a while as a, as a married couple. And he was pursuing his career in the Navy. And many thought that he would end up as First Lord of the Admiralty. He was such a star. And they never for a minute thought that that um, George VI would die so soon. So they thought that they had 20 years or so as a, a couple uh, on the fringes of the royal family, not, not at the heart of it. And um, so the Queen has always been very understanding of anybody who wants to step back for a few years and, and just enjoy family life because you know, you're a long time being a royal. And that's so interesting that she had those, um, you know, she was having those meetings about that, what turned out to be huge, you know, explosive interview and that they were happening so soon after the wedding, which obviously we've, we've found out since things weren't quite as happy as they appeared on the surface. But end of 2018, I'm just trying to think what was happening then. That was, that was around, that was Australia tour, wasn't it? 
Is that mm. the end of the year? Yeah. Like, it's really interesting that things were so, you know, they were already looking kind of for a way out. Well, uh, yes. I mean, uh, the irony is they found that it was just too, it was too difficult. The, uh, and they found the pressure and the intense uh, inquiries into their lives just too much to handle. And, you know, it, it was, a, a, as I mentioned earlier, it was a relatively short tour compared to the first Diane Charles tour and, and certainly totally overshadowed by um, the Queen and Prince Philip back in 1954. But it was too much for them. And uh, they, they, they came to a, you know, a mutual decision to, to step back, as, as we all know. And, you know, the, <laughs> what makes me smile about that, those, deba- the, the, those discussions is that they've talked about collaborating with the Queen. Well, as I say in the book, the one thing you don't do with the Queen is collaborate. She's, you know, you're not on an even keel. This is, this is not a, a, a discussion of amongst equals of different, of differing ages. This is a, a hierarchy. And I think that they also, and probably Meghan more, more so than Harry, didn't quite understand that the royal family is all about position. It's not about popularity. And they were enormously popular. But quite frankly, every member of the royal family has their day in the sun. Even Prince Andrew was, you know, at one stage, one of the most popular members of the royal family. Princess Margaret in the 1960s, swinging 60s darting around London in a in a mini and on the back of a scooter with Lord Snowden. You know, everybody has their day in the sun. The Queen's had to, um, is having a second day in the sun or third day in the sun. <laughs> um, uh, and well, I don't think they fully grasped that, you know, I don't think Meghan fully grasped that she'd be curtsying to Catherine Middleton for the rest of her life. Now, one of the things that I've found a bit baffling in the last couple of years, and I'm hoping you might be able to to share your thoughts on it and it might make sense to me. There's been lots of uh, chat and conversation about one of the final straws it's been described as uh, for Meghan and Harry was that uh, the Queen and her heirs photo, uh, which is obviously the picture of Queen, uh, Prince Charles, Prince William and Prince George. And, uh, you know, lots of people saying it, you know, for them made it clear that they weren't part of the the key royal group. They've grown up in this world where they know and they have the position they are because of the level of seniority they are. Surely this couldn't have been a surprise. Like that is the entire royal family runs on who was, you know, the most senior. Surely Harry has grown up knowing. And I'm pretty sure he said in an interview before that he wanted to make the most of it until Prince George got interesting. I can't remember exactly what the quote was, but surely they, why, how could they have been so offended by this when this was always going to be what was going to happen? I think they they realised fully that they would they were not necessarily wanted on board that the, the the direction of travel for the for the British royal family was essentially around a fairly tight group and they were on the on on the outside on the on the fringes uh, looking in and um, so they gave thought to what would they like to do and you know Prince Harry has. Picked, on, picked up the Invictus Games and he's made a great success of that. And it's one of the features that I talk about in the book about how the Queen and Prince Philip allowed their children to make their own decisions about what kind of work they wanted to do in the in the kind of humanities, as it were, in the in the world of charities. You know, we've got Princess Anne who who didn't want to go to university and she she snags. Save the Children Fund, and she's done a brilliant job there. I've I've travelled around Af- Africa with her, watching her at work there. Uh, Prince Charles started the Princess Trust again. It, it it came from left field, but he's made a great success of that, and many many thousands of kids have gone on to start their own businesses as a result. Um, so. The, this is what happens. The royals are left to their own devices. There are no kind of diktats. And, and Prince Harry has has gone for um, the Invictus Games. And, you know, in the long term, he may be proved right. The Commonwealth, you know, may collapse as we know it for all. We don't know. We can't have a, a window into the future. But it may well be that the, the Commonwealth is just kept together by admiration and respect for uh, Her Majesty. 
And so what do you think of the life that Meghan and Harry have carved out for themselves in America so far? Well, I I live in uh, Los Angeles for quite a lot of the year and I know Montecito pretty well. And I mean, it's, it is a, a, literally a garden of Eden. It's a beautiful part of the world. It's a lovely part of the world. And, you know, when people say, oh, how, how terrible for them. Yeah, yeah I think it must, must be awful for them. They've had to give <laughs> a two-bedroom two cottage at Nottingham Cottage at Kensington Palace for somewhere with 16 bathrooms. I mean, <laughs> it's it, the, even I've seen the grounds and... and um, uh, even Prince Charles would be quite jealous. <laughs> well, uh, there's one thing which which does intrigue me. They were given a, a grand piano uh, as a housewarming gift, and I, I just wonder. I, I don't think they've ever either Harry or Meghan have ever shown any musical ability. It'll be interesting to see Lilibet or Archie uh, take to the to the bones. I think that's one of those things that every you always see it in celebrity homes, don't there? There's always a piano, even if people don't play it. And it's just if you've got lots of rooms to fill, you need some big furniture, I guess. And and where they are, I mean, he's he's playing a, a summer's worth of polo, and who knows? They may invite William over to, for a charity match, and that could be an interesting holiday. I think I think this is. Going forward, I think this is going to be the most important, interesting, if not important, first birthday party in royal history with Lilibet. Yeah, very true. <laughs> it's going to be there's going to be some great headlines. It was going to be some nice stories, you know, when Lilibet met Lilibet. Yeah, yes, very true. <laughs> and what I'm loving about seeing the Sussexes' new life is they. We're seeing them very much now in my mind as celebrities. And, um, you know, we've had red carpet. We've had the the um, last year's Christmas card, which was, you know, they're all in the white shirt and jeans and, the, you know, Harry's bare feet, like barefooted a lot now. Um, are you enjoying seeing that more relaxed side? Is that what you were expecting or is it is it different to what you had in mind when you heard yeah. they were stepping back? No, it's very much what they wanted. And you're going to have... Archie and Lilibet as the first royal surfer dudes. <laughs> Butterfly Beach, which is a surfer beach, is very is walking distance from their house. Um, so you're going to see them brought up in a very different way. And and also, but but the irony is that the the fo- although obviously long term focus will be on Prince George as the heir to the throne, I think there's going to be enormous intrigue and interest in Lilibet because she's the first American princess. Definitely. And it will be really interesting because obviously they grow up in an entirely different world. It will be fascinating to see to see what happens. Now, moving on to the Queen's relationship with Prince Andrew, and um, this is something that you that's come under huge scrutiny in the last few weeks, especially after he escorted her to her seat at Prince Philip's memorial. It's something you reflect on uh, a lot throughout the book. Why? Why is their bond so strong? I know there's always been rumours, and he's often been described as the the favourite son. Why is that? It's a question I asked a lot of people I interviewed. Why is Prince Andrew the favourite son? And they all said, yes, he is. And then, then they kind of shook their heads with bafflement. Um, and he he came along at a time when the Queen, in 1960, 1960, at a time when the Queen, as it were, had got her, her feet wet under the, under, uh, of, she was more relaxed. She was that bit older. She was more experienced, at the, the routines of the job. And she, she, she's always said that she wanted to, wanted to be in a farmer's wife and live, live in a, a house in the country with dogs, horses and children. Well, here was the opportunity to have more children. And uh, Andrew, and, and when you are, and there's a lot of, the, there's a lot of correspondence in the book uh, from the Queen to f- various friends, notably in, in Malta, saying how much her, you know, what a breath of fresh air it was to have Andrew around and, uh, you know, how great it was to have a new baby in, in the palace. Um, so it, it came at a very happy time in the Queen's life. And, you know, just the, uh, her, her sister just got married or, or was about to get married. So, you know, it was a happy time for the for the House of Windsor. And how often can you say that? 
And obviously due to everything that's happened in the last few years, she has, you know, she stripped him of his official titles. They've had lots of, you know, what must have been difficult conversations behind the scenes. But she does still seem determined to keep him in the public eye. Like I said, I was, I was shocked when he you know, had that huge role at the uh, service of Thanksgiving uh, for Prince Philip. Why do you think she's so determined to to keep him in that, you know, front and centre role? Well, Prince Andrew has always been absolutely loyal to his his mother. We'll never hear a word said against her uh, during the whole fraught uh, funeral week after Diana's death. Um, there was a scene where Andrew comes into a room at Balmoral where the various officials and courtiers and politicians and so on were talking and and, and they mentioned something about the Queen and, and you know, Andrew exploded saying that you can't speak about the Queen in that way or you can't, you can't reject what the Queen has to say. Uh, her word is law. So he's always been intensely loyal and she's admired the fact as well that you know, during the Falklands War, 1982, he was an Exocet decoy. And, and let me explain briefly what that is. When the, his job was to protect HMS Invincible, which was the aircraft carrier, and uh, the, the Argentines wanted to sink that, and his job as a helicopter pilot was to Exocet missiles, which had been shot by the, the uh, Argentinian uh, Air Force. At, and... and and then once it's attracted them, it's kind of use the, the propellers just to ri- rise up very quickly so that the missile exploded harmlessly underneath. Well, that was a theory. Effectively, you were just a sitting duck and you were there just to sacrif- as a sacrifice for, for the invincible. Now, that took a lot, a lot of guts to do. And, you know, and she very much appreciated that because that, that conflict cost a lot in blood and treasure for Great Britain. And it and the Argentines had in their sights that Andrew was their primary target. So, you know, he showed a lot of courage during that period. And she liked as well the fact that he organised the, the uh, uh, retrieval of works of art from Windsor Castle during the, the, the famous fire in 1992. And again, that was him showing initiative but also loyalty to the queen and so she doesn't forget those things and um you know he's he's been a very loyal son to her and the the the, uh uh memorial service was essentially a family occasion it wasn't a state occasion so it was up to her who she had leading her to her seat which is a long long long-winded way of saying that she's a mum and children, her children can do no wrong. <laughs> and obviously there's there's a huge amount of anger from lots of people and not just people in Britain about, you know, his, you know, th- everything that's going on with it and also how it's been handled. Do you think she risks losing popularity over her, you know, by, by keeping those links, all those public links with Andrew? The Queen was attacked for allowing the Prince Andrew to go on Newsnight and give that car crash interview to uh, to the BBC, and even the Times, which is the paper of record, says you know I think I think the headline said is is the Queen losing her grip, and because Andrew had only done that interview after being given permission by the Queen and also Prince Charles, and. Quite frankly, they should have learned a lesson by now. Put a microphone near any member of the royal family and you've got headlines forevermore. Prince Charles and talking about, you know, his his adultery in, in the, the interview with Dimbleby, uh, Diana herself and the panorama. Um, and then, and of course, more recently, Harry, Harry and Meghan. So why it would be any different for Prince Andrew is beyond me. I mean, they should have, you know, stuck to the first rule of royalty, never complain, never explain. And it, and she has been, over her reign, been prepared to take a hit for the monarchy so that, so that uh, she can preserve the happiness of her, her sister her, and her children. I mean, no, notably, um, the, the royal family were attacked over um, 
Princess, well, Mar Princess Margaret was attacked over her relationship with Roddy Llewellyn, um, and uh, the Queen let it go on. But it was it, it was a very difficult period in their relationship. Now, obviously, I can't interview you and not ask about Diana. And so people are still absolutely fascinated and obsessed uh, with her. Why do you think she's had such a lasting influence? Well, I think that Diana's influence has lasted longer than anybody ever thought. It's a, and it's the 25th anniversary of her death and it's the 30th anniversary of the publication of Diana, Her True Story, because of the fact that her torchbearers in life, William and Harry, have... Uh, have, have not forgotten her. Have, have um, held concerts in her in her memory. Uh, Harry himself says that he never makes a decision without referring it to her, as it were, in a spiritual sense. So, uh, and and she marks a, a, a turning point in a way in the way the royal family behaved. And she she through her behaviour um, helped to modernise and make more human. The royal family. So it was not, you know, big handbags, white gloves, and standoffish. It was more touchy feely than uh, it, had, it had ever been in the past. So it, it, she made the, the royal family more relevant to modern times. And you've said in your new book, uh, The Queen, that while Diana's uh, testimony and obviously what you wrote at the time was extremely honest and very moving and very powerful, uh, but it didn't tell the full story because obviously it couldn't because it was just one side of it. Um, and you said, which is interesting, was that the Queen was dragged against her national inclinations on several points do you think now that you've done a piece of work focusing on the queen do you think that you kind of maybe fully understood you know do you, have you seen a different side to it or now you've seen you know a different perspective how's that opened your eyes to stuff I think that's a very good, it's a very good question obviously Dinah her true story was as the title suggests from Dinah's point of view and the queen got second billing and as did prince charles uh, but having focused a more objective look on on the queen um you can see that she reached out to her but at the same time uh, didn't act and that's what frustrated diana that the the she always saw the Queen as some kind of royal referee. And, and, and when I asked, when I talked to her about, about the Queen, it was the only interview where she was very considered and very thoughtful and very reflective, where she didn't just, you know, come out with, with something. She really, she didn't want to be portrayed as someone who was um, criticising the sovereign. Um, so I think, yes, of course, there are other perspectives on this. I mean, the Queen had to think about the monarchy, not just herself. She had to think about um, uh, what the, the, the impact on, on the monarchy. And I think that what I, what I write was that, you know, she let the whole thing drag on um, when in the hope that something might turn up. And that was very much a feature of her royal policy, not to make a decision too too quickly, to be cautious. And I think that when you look at it from the Queen's point of view, she gave both the Prince and Princess of Wales a lot of latitude to sort things out, but they but they weren't. So from her point of view, it was a policy failure. And what do you think, obviously, you know, nobody nobody can obviously no, but having spent time with her and worked with her, what do you think Diana would make of the rift between between her sons? Oh, there's no absolutely no question about it. She'd be mortified um, that William and Harry have got themselves into this uh, emotional tangle. Um, she always said to me, not just once, not just twice, but on numerous occasions, that Harry was William's wingman. That he was the he was the second boy born into the royal family uh, and and she even looked to the past she said you know most members of the royal family just have a have a girl and a boy like like princess margaret or or, or two girls like queen elizabeth the queen mother um so she'd looked into this and she really felt that harry was there to support william at the, in a very lonely job and and she would find it uh, uh, very difficult the fact that they you know don't um, certainly not in public uh, communicate anymore 
And another one of the big stories that's come out this year was the statement from the Queen on to mark her um, uh, session day was talking about Camilla and her hopes that Camilla would become the Queen consort when Charles takes the throne. How did you feel when you read this statement? Were you surprised by it? I wasn't surprised for the simple reason that the Queen is, a, is if she's anything, she's a good housekeeper. And um, hence the fact that, that people said that she should have a plaque outside one of her bothies up in Balmoral saying the Queen swept here. <laughs> she's, she's a very tidy person. And even as a little girl, she used to keep her shoes all lined up properly and wake up in the night and make sure everything was tidy. So there's a, a tidiness about her character. And you can see there's a lot of tidying up going on at the minute towards the end of the reign. And the biggest issue that's needed to be tidied is Camilla and how is she going to be referred to. And incrementally, the Queen has brought her status higher and higher she's a few years ago she put her in the privy council so that she could be there when the uh, the, the, the the succession was announced then she was made a, a member of the order of the garter on a very elite group and at the queen's personal gift and then finally she says she'd like the the, the queen uh, 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 uh Camilla to be called queen uh, consort and that, that has kind of ended any debate because when Prince Charles first married Camilla, the, the mood music was, oh, she's never going to be called Queen. And of course, within a matter of years, they were backtracking very heavily. So the Queen, I think, has this is going to be the smoothest transition in, in history. Um, certainly at least since Queen Victoria and Edward VII. Um, and uh, the, the Queen has made has asked for Prince Charles to be made the head of the Commonwealth. And, um, there's been various knighthoods for people involved in the transition. So, you know, there's, there's what to do. There's a, there's, a, there's a book on what to do when she, when she dies. Um, so, and, and so it goes on. So, yes, it's down to the Queen as a housekeeper. And I felt the public reaction to this statement was actually really positive, which for me just highlighted the incredible journey that Camilla's been in, in, you know, the last few decades. Because, you know, she was really hated by lots of people when obviously their relationship first came out. And the fact that it does feel obviously there are, it's not by everyone. Some people still don't believe she should have that queen, uh, you know, that Queen Consort title. But for me, I thought it was quite interesting that she, she has managed to, it seems like she's managed to win people over. Do you agree or what are your thoughts on that? Well, the media elite and the political elite have all put their shoulders to the wheel behind the decision to call Camilla Queen Consort. Uh, I'm sure that there will be a rump in the country of people who feel that you know, if Camilla hadn't been around, Charles and Diana uh, might be still married and Diana might be st still be alive. Um, the fact that neither William nor Harry seem to be uh, send effusive um, congratulations to that position does tend to make you feel that the, the, the two brothers, it's one of the few things they agree on, that um, they're not overly enamoured by Queen Camilla. Um, so, uh, yes, the full weight of the establishment is behind Queen Camilla. Uh, the jury is out on whether the, the public still want uh, feel uh, that Queen Camilla is appropriate. That said, I mean, she's brought, she's no nonsense. She's brought a lot of happiness to Prince Charles. They seem very settled. I mean, you know, um, there's there's none of the uh, anguish and antics of, of years gone by, uh, and she seems someone who's there to support her man, and which is what at the end of the day, that's all he really wanted. And, he, and long before he he married uh, Princess Diana, Prince Charles always used to say that um, he was looking for a companion, not necessarily not necessarily a lover, somebody who's there to support and and uh, uh, keeping company really in the in the kind of in the loneliness of the long distance monarch 
It's interesting what you say actually about William and Harry, because I've read quite a lot of reports about Harry, uh, you know, allegedly being really unhappy about the decision, but I haven't heard as much on William. So do you think it is, you know, it's something that they, they do share then that they, then, you know, they don't want to see her alongside their father when he takes the throne? Well, I think they, they've sidestepped the issue by saying it's a matter for them. Uh, but, you know, as Prince William will be the direct heir to the throne and Harry is, what is he, sixth? Um, you know, he, and, and they are the, the sons of uh, of Charles and, and Diana. Then, it, in a way, they should have weighed in with a, a few sentences um, uh, congratulating uh, Camilla on her elevation. And it, 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 it is what is not said that is often in the, uh, the, the where the interesting stuff happens. And just finally, then, I, I also think in the last few years, I believe we're seeing a lot more of future King William step up. He seems to be, you know, he's stepping into a lot of official duties, but also in how he is, he's a lot more serious with things. And we know obviously he's stepping up more with as the Queen steps back slightly in terms of engagements. What have you noticed in the change uh, of William? Do you know, I was thinking about this the other day and he would have been on the, if he'd have succeeded, acceded, um, in the same way as the Queen, he'd been on. He would have been on the throne for 15 years when it comes to his birthday. I mean, it's, it's quite quite remarkable. I mean, he is obviously now taking part in a lot more of the key decisions. I mean, notably the um, uh, ex- excising of Andrew from the from the royal family, um, and he's. You know, dealing with the the heavy, he's taking part in the heavy lifting now um, of of the royal fam of the royal family, and that's and that's the change. I mean, you know, and he's getting older, and and the focus is going to be on, not so much on him and Catherine in ten years' time, but on his children. And Catherine, I think we've also seen really step up both in her charity work and her causes in how she is and you know she's just seems to be growing in confident every in confidence every single year and that bond really does feel stronger than ever and the relationship they have and the support they offer each other yes i think that's a very good point and and i real, realized watching the royal family over the years that it takes a long long time to to really understand what it's like to be royal and Catherine Middleton has spent 10, 12 years coming coming to terms with it. And you know, so did Sophie Rees-Jones when, when she, uh, and she's got a much um, a lower profile or, or did. Um, uh, and it just takes a long time to absorb yourself into, into this. And Catherine it was quite a shy person anyway. So, you know, making speeches and being public was something of of a of an ordeal, but I think she's overcome that. She's now, and 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 it, and it reminds me ever so much of Diana. She struggled for a few years to come to terms with what you know what it's like to be a princess for the start, both the outward side and the interior side, and and the great tragedy I think is that Meghan and Harry didn't give it long enough to see whether they could give it a go and you know they were on they were on the outs almost before the the the, the, the wedding music music had finished well yeah because there were so many comparisons i remember at the time of megan's first speech compared to catherine's first speech and you know they were so different and that is obviously because megan's an actress and catherine was much younger and from you know a normal family background actually it's not just that Megan is a is a natural. She I've got pictures of her when she was age ten leading a march against um, the first Gulf War uh, at her school. The, the local TV cameras turned up and she was there. I mean, she was uh, doing stuff. When, you know, she was giving interviews when she was twelve years old. So, and she she spoke at the United Nations in front of Hillary Clinton. She's an she she. I know there's a lot of people listening who don't like her, but she was, she had the possibility, had great possibilities of using her talent 
and her position to make a genuine change to the world. I don't know. I don't think she's going to make as much of a change living in Montecito. And what is the Queen and Catherine's relationship like now? Because I know at the start there were reports that there were maybe some concerns from the Queen's side that uh, Catherine perhaps didn't have enough experience and, you know, she didn't she didn't have her kind of own role in life in her own, you know, strong identity um, because she'd been with, you know, she'd been dating a prince since she was at university. But has that, has the, I'm assuming that's improved now because Catherine's doing an incredible job in the royal family. Well, I have to say, I think that's nonsense because, I mean, you know, it's not like uh, uh, Diana had a job. Uh, she was a kindergarten helper and, you know, the, the Queen accepted her, as did Prince Philip. That they, it's, it's what the Queen admired about Catherine was that she very much supported William. She was there as, as a helpmate, but also she clearly loved the man, not just not the position. And and I think that for her, it's been the difficulty has been uh, getting used to the position. Um, uh, I mean, she'd been with the man for, what, 10 years before they got married. And just finally then to finish us off, what was the... What was your favourite thing you learnt about the Queen when you were researching for this book? I just love her dry sense of humour. And I'll just give you a quick example of it. I mean, she was once asked by a little boy, do you believe in Father Christmas? And it's a tricky, uh, that's a tricky Yeah, that's, really, that's hard for uh, anyone to answer, let alone. <laughs> and, the queen, and the Queen, consummate diplomat, said, uh, you know, uh, I'd like to think I believed in Father Christmas. Now, that's for me. (laughs) That's someone who does crossword puzzles. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's very true. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining me today, today, Andrew. It's been amazing speaking to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And thank you so much to all our listeners for tuning in. As always, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Podsafe. And until next time. Pod save the queen!